This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and welcome to Warfare, a podcast that is on the front line of military history. Each week, twice a week, I bring you brand new cutting-edge military histories, new historical findings, and we place current world events into their proper historical context. This week is no different. As the petition to remove a knighthood from former British Prime Minister Tony Blair passes more than a million signatures, we ask, is the XPM the least deserving person, as the petition says, to get an honour due to his role in the Iraq War? To take us through this history, we have Brigadier Ben Barry, who was director of the British Army staff and led the team that wrote the British Army's final analysis of its campaign in Iraq. Ben is now a senior fellow for land warfare, at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, IISS, and the author of a new book, Blood, Metal and Dust, How Victory Turned to Defeat in Afghanistan in Iraq. And so he is the perfect person to take us through these controversies, successes and failures of the Iraq War. Enjoy. Hi Ben, thanks for taking the time to chat. How are you doing today? How's the start of your new year going? It's going well. We managed to avoid getting COVID over Christmas within my family. And I've actually taken a couple of weeks off to start work on my next book called The Rise and Fall of the British Army 1970 to 2020, which looks at the British Army from an unusual perspective, namely its rise and fall, its great improvement in capability up to the 1990s, and then it's miring in unpopular wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and steadily getting smaller since 1990 as well. And so this runs parallel to your own career. Give us a little insight into your background. Well, I joined the army in 1975. I spent a brief period actually as a private soldier doing recruit training with the light infantry, the regiment I subsequently joined after graduating from Sandhurst at the end of 1976. I had a Cold War career, quite a bit of Cold War service, including what was then the very exciting experimental air mobile brigade, the army formed in Germany, uh, but also a lot of time in Northern Ireland and time in Hong Kong. At the end of the Cold War, as the Berlin Wall opened, I was actually in Berlin, which was quite exciting. Then the 1990s were dominated by Bosnia, where I had the privilege of commanding a British armoured infantry battalion and quite a lot of service in the Ministry of Defence. My final job in the army was writing the British Army's final series of lessons learned arising from its role in Iraq. I then joined the International Institute for Strategic Studies, where I've been the land warfare expert ever since. 
my work in IISS has concentrated on wars in progress, particularly Afghanistan, and also British defence policy and capability. Well, you mention Iraq, and this is why we've got you on the podcast, Ben, because I'm sure you've seen, but over a million people have now signed a petition calling for ex-British Prime Minister Tony Blair to have his knighthood, a distinguished honour, removed due to his involvement in the Iraq war. And domestically, it could be argued that Blair was a master politician, but with the controversies around the Iraq war, the idea of Sir Tony doesn't fit right with many people. And so this is why I wanted to get you on the podcast, to talk to us about the Iraq war and give us some historical insights into the conflict. Although for me personally, it sounds weird to talk about the Iraq war as history quite now, but we're nearing that point where it's almost 20 years since the start. So I suppose we need to start saying history, don't we? Yeah. So take us back to that period, perhaps a little bit before. Take us back to the turn of the 21st century. Okay, I think the British Army that begins the 21st century and the Ministry of Defence and the Armed Forces are actually quite proud of what they've achieved. In 1990, they were the second largest contingent in Operation Desert Storm, which evicted the Iraqi army from Kuwait. They then faced an unexpected challenge with peacekeeping in a mission in Bosnia where there wasn't a peace to keep. And they played a decisive role in ending the war there. Indeed, in my judgment, if there was any justice in the committee that awards the Nobel Peace Prize, General Sir Rupert Smith, the British commander of the UN force in Bosnia, and the late US diplomat Richard Holbrook should have shared a Nobel Prize for negotiating the ceasefire. The British Army also played the leading role in stopping the oppression of the ethnic Kosovars by Serb forces and setting up NATO's K4. And in that, it was given considerable backing by Tony Blair who forced President Clinton, who didn't want to engage with the Kosovo War, to engage. You know, it's no secret that quite a few babies in Kosovo were named Tony. One of the most popular names, I think. Yes. And Blair also greatly supported the British military intervention in Sierra Leone, which not only rescued civilians who were at risk, but also changed the gravity of the situation in Sierra Leone, such that the very obnoxious rebels were eventually militarily and politically neutralised. So come 9-11, the US is very much in the lead in dealing with this unforeseen challenge in Afghanistan and deserves great credit for a highly innovative operation, which involved the CIA, US Special Forces and Precision Air Power joining with the warlords of the Northern Alliance to destroy the Taliban government. And Britain also played a leading role in setting up the International Security Assistance Force in Kabul, which we must remember, there was no security and no stability in Kabul, and just President Karzai is an acting president. And Blair was very supportive in that, and indeed the International Security Assistance Force was one of his initiatives. Also, the British Army had quietly sustained the peace process in Northern Ireland, leading to the Belfast Agreement. So you could say that the British Army and the armed forces in general were basking in a warm glow of satisfaction that A, they got a prime minister who'd wanted to use them, but B, what they'd done between 1990 and 2001 had public and political and media support, as indeed, of course, did the initial intervention into Iraq, but then things start going wrong and the Iraq war becomes increasingly difficult and the war loses popularity. And that, I think, is what has contaminated Blair's reputation. Now. The British 
Iraq inquiry, the so-called Chilcot inquiry, which actually took longer to report than the war itself lasted, that very clearly sets out in forensic detail the relationship between events in Iraq and decisions taken and not taken in London. And I'm afraid Blair's reputation is quite rightly damaged about that. He often almost instinctively wanted to do the right thing. And indeed, he performed well before the invasion in terms of decision making. But after that, after the war, his role as a prime minister leading the stabilisation of Iraq was suboptimal. He failed. For example, he often instructed that things be done by the British government. They were usually done by the Ministry of Defence. They were often not done by the Foreign Commonwealth Office or the International Development Department. So my view is that, you know, there's much credit that Blair is owed for Kosovo, for Sierra Leone, for the early stages of the conflict in Afghanistan. But against that, you have to set poor leadership of the stabilisation of Iraq. See, that's really interesting for me because you provide such a, a nuanced understanding of that period. Instead of painting Blair as the villain as he's been seen in terms of the Iraq war, there are, there are many successes for Blair and also for the British military. They may not have been ready for the global war on terror that was about to be thrust upon them, but you know, soaring high from recent victories and the ability to adapt to the challenges ahead of them meant that there were some initial successes early on. But take us back to that period then. When does Iraq start to rise on the horizon for Blair and for Bush? Well, I think it's for Bush because in late 2001, early 2002, Bush instructs Rumsfeld, who in turn instructs General Tommy Franks, the commander of CENTCOM, to begin preparing options for Iraq. And this is before the war in Afghanistan is even over. For example, at the time these instructions come out, the US has yet to detect the concentration of Taliban forces that is subsequently attacked as part of Operation Anaconda, a very difficult operation, which came within an inch of failing. But there's no doubt from late winter, early spring 2002, General Franks and the headquarters of CENTCOM and people in the Pentagon and Rumsfeld himself are very distracted by preparing options for operations in Iraq. What also happens is this is where you see the dark side of Rumsfeld's personality because he's a very difficult man to work for, and he hectors and he badgers and he asks unhelpful questions to exert his personal control over the Department of Defence. One thing I think that not many British people realise is in the 1980s, effectively, the US Constitution was adjusted and the Secretary of Defence was given the ability to personally direct operations by the senior US commanders. For example, the commander of Central Command, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, being one of a number of advisors. And Rumsfeld, who, of course, had previously been Secretary of Defence, is full of confidence. Having said that, of course, after 9-11, and I was in the United States 10 days after 9-11 for a week, Rumsfeld was a tonic to national morale. You know, the US felt it had been outrageously attacked. People were very worried about further terrorist attacks. There was also the Washington sniper running around, and there were these, what appeared at the time, inexplicable anthrax attacks. Yes. And all of that put the US into a defensive crouch, and Rumsfeld himself, through projecting confidence, actually was a positive force for US national morale. 
But there's no doubt in my mind that the distraction of the US and increasingly the UK in preparing for an invasion of Iraq took many people's attention away from Afghanistan. So when Iraq goes wrong, when it starts becoming an increasingly difficult war and increasingly problematic, all that bandwidth and brain power and government intellectual resource that could be allocated to helping Afghanistan on its path away from the medieval conditions it was in, that's all sucked away by Iraq. It's a massive opportunity cost. What you also then get is as the Iraq war becomes less and less popular, it contaminates the legitimacy of the war in Afghanistan. And that's reinforced, of course, by the revelations of prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib and of extraordinary rendition and Guantanamo Bay and CIA black sites. So it seems to me the single biggest factor that stopped the US and its allies helping Afghanistan modernize itself and fight off the Taliban was the decision to invade Iraq. I mean, it's a decision of similar magnitude to Napoleon's decision to attack Russia, which basically meant that he lost the rest of the war in Europe. Or for that matter, Hitler's decision to attack the Soviet Union, which had the same effect. They are really interesting parallels. And it's also a bit of a failure of the Allies' own doing, really. They conflated the narratives of Afghanistan and Iraq as part of a broader global war on terror, as part of an axis of evil. And so when things start to go wrong, those errors in judgment start to conflate and the conflicts conflate as well. But perhaps you can take us back to the beginning of Operation Cobra II, that invasion of Iraq. Is it fair to say that this was a rushed and haphazard operation, that the preparations for war just weren't there and that there were appalling relations between the major players, perhaps because, exactly as you say, it's almost being run by decree from Rumsfeld on one side and Blair on the other? I'd say there's an element of truth in what you say. But of course, whereas the US didn't have a plan to do an invasion of Afghanistan, they did have a plan to do an invasion of Iraq. CENTCOM had a plan for a much bigger operation that would have taken longer to assemble. But I would say that the regime change in Iraq, it was a success. It was done more quickly with far fewer forces than many of the pundits and retired military senior officers thought it could be achieved. Now, why was that? It was because the US, UK and Australian forces that took part were well-trained, they were thoroughly modernised, and they were well-commanded and well-led, whereas the Iraqi armed forces had not been modernised since 1991 to any extent, and they were extremely badly led by a monomaniac tyrant, Saddam Hussein, and his very poisonous sons. So it shouldn't have surprised anybody that a much smaller US and British force defeated a much larger Iraqi force, although the Iraqi force itself, had it been better organised and better led, could have used tactics which could have greatly reduced the speed of advance of the uh, British and Americans. But there are several aspects of this invasion that were very innovative. If we start in the Western desert, there was an effort to deceive the Iraqis that the main force was coming from Jordan, and also to close down places where Scud missiles could be fired at Israel. And this was largely led by US special forces, but with British and Australian special forces as well. And this, despite some problems, succeeded. In the north, there was a very innovative operation of which I think not enough is known. 
which was when the US put a large contingent of CIA into Kurdistan, which of course was independent of Saddam Hussein. They followed this up with a lot of Green Beret special forces. They then parachuted in an airborne brigade and landed a heavy battle group on a captured airstrip. And they also brought in some US Marines from Crete. And that was able to hold the one third of Iraqi ground forces that faced Kurdistan and also move rapidly as the Saddam Hussein government collapsed to stabilize towns like Kirkuk and Mosul. And then coming from Kuwait, you also get a really ambitious and aggressive maneuver by the US Army's Fifth Corps, comprising little more than two divisions, the 3rd Infantry Division, in fact, Heavy Mechanized Division, and the 101st Air Assault Division, and the Marine Expeditionary Force, a core-sized force with the 1st Marine Division, and also the 1st British Armoured Division that moves quickly up on the um, eastern side of Iraq. And the British also have an innovative operation to take Basra without flattening. They didn't want to turn Basra into, into Grozny. So there's lots of aspects of that US regime change operation that should be studied in staff colleges and war studies departments. I fear that the unpopularity of the Iraq war means that they're not studied as much as they should be, which is why in my book on the Iraq and Afghan wars, the longest chapter is about Operation Cobra II. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So strategically and tactically, it sounds like it's not only sophisticated, but impressively successful. But is it the case that the Western Allies are quite good at doing the initial operations, at winning wars quite quickly? When do we start to see this all go wrong? I know in your book you call it a descent into chaos. What do you mean by this? When does this start, Ben? Well, it starts as soon as Saddam Hussein's forces are defeated, with the mass looting that occurred, with the US and British forces choosing not to intervene. And where they do intervene, they don't intervene very effectively. And of course, it's now pretty clear that whilst they had sufficient conventional forces to kick the door open and destroy the Iraqi conventional forces, they didn't have much behind them that built up quickly enough to stabilise the country. Very quickly, the Iraqi people lost faith in the occupiers. You know, a common cry was, well, if this country can put a man on the moon, why can't they fix our power network so we have more than a few hours of power each day? The US consciously chose not to plan sufficiently for stabilising Iraq afterwards. And Rumsfeld was very, very keen that Iraq was not substantially reinforced. I think there were many in the US military and the British military who thought they'd be received like they'd been received in Kosovo as welcome liberators. But in fact, they very quickly became part of the problem rather than part of the solution. They got enough force in the country to be seen as occupiers, but they hadn't got enough force to be seen to stabilise the country. You then get intervention by three different sets of malign actors. One of them is Iran, who contribute to sheer death squads and through the Iranian Republican Guard Forces, Quds Force, set up all sorts of proxy actors, which are aiming to dominate Iraqi politics, but also to increase the cost of the occupation by using proxies to attack coalition forces, of which they're really quite successful. You also get Syria deliberately acting as a platform from which jihadists all over the world can travel to Iraq to fight infidels. Indeed, by the end of the regime change phase, several thousand Syrians had already gone into Iraq to fight infidels. And you also then get al-Qaeda that sees it as a great opportunity as well. And this quickly reinforces itself. I mean, a good example of this is in spring 2004, when the US decides against the military advice to arrest Muqtada al-Sadr, the Shia firebrand cleric. It then creates an uprising by the Shia militias. At the same time, the US chooses to attack Fallujah in response to the murder of some US contractors. And you get Sunnis and Shias actually cooperating for one time in the history of Iraq against the Americans. Now, that, I think, was a strategic shock. It was a strategic shock to many countries in the alliance who'd gone to Iraq 
thinking they'd be doing something rather like Bosnia or Kosovo, some modestly hazardous peacekeeping. And indeed, in multinational divisions central south, in the area south of Baghdad, many of the national contingents there retreated to their bases and weren't prepared to take on the sheer militants. But it was a real shock that this degree of armed opposition, people who would sell themselves dearly, were prepared to fight British and American troops to the extent that they were able. During this period, and of course it's difficult to talk about this, but during this period, do you feel like there was ever a point that the British neared defeat as this conflict turned from being, like you say, a relatively tough peace operation through to a a regional, if not a raging international conflict with people coming from across the region, if not around the world, to take part in the fight? I just begin this by saying that whilst British and US strategic objectives and their military strategy was in alignment for the regime change, and immediately thereafter, from about 2004, British and US strategies diverged. The US, for example, considered that the Sunni and Al-Qaeda insurgency was the priority. And for them, the centre of gravity of the conflict was understandably Baghdad. They viewed southern Iraq as an economy of force theatre, and the principal thing they wanted out of the British was to keep it quiet. Now, for various reasons, their strategies continued to slowly diverge. But in 2007, Bush orders the surge into Iraq, which Britain declines to join. Why does it decline to join? Well, the evidence suggests to me that by then, the British government in general and people in the Ministry of Defence in particular felt that the conflict was unwinnable. They didn't think the surge was going to work. And by then, they'd also committed seriously to Afghanistan and had no spare forces to put into Iraq without putting the British armed forces on much more of a war footing than they were. And where this all comes to a head is an 18-month, or a slightly less than 18-month period, where the British do a deal with the Shia militias in Basra that they will stop attacking the British if the British will release their prisoners and the British withdraw from Basra. Basra is then taken over by hardline Shia militias. The British plan to help the Iraqi army do an operation late in 2018 to restore control of Basra. But in fact, in Easter 2018, Prime Minister Maliki decides that he'll send the Iraqi army down to Basra to clear it because the British aren't. Unsurprisingly, the first Iraqi brigade that goes into Basra is defeated, partly because it was less well-trained than it should have been. So then a lot more Iraqi forces are sent down with US mentoring teams, the British having declined to form mentoring teams, and also US air support and armed drones. And it's through the, the efforts of the US and the Iraqis, that defeat is narrowly avoided in Basra in 2018. And that's where I think they came closest to defeat. So what's your judgment on the surge, otherwise known as the new way forward, this investment in another 20,000 or so troops? And and not only that, the cancelling of rotation for many others who are told to stay in Iraq. This is a substantial investment of military capital. Do we think this is the right decision? Is it a success? Well, I think if you look at it from a counterfactual, if the surge hadn't happened, the US would have been defeated in Iraq. Al-Qaeda, the Sunnis and the Shia militias would have got the upper hand. Iraq would have descended into chaos, into a sort of three-sided civil war, rather like Bosnia did. 
and the US would not have been able to stabilize it. So the US and British and other international missions would have failed. The surge also coincided with the US Army and Marine Corps re-engaging with counterinsurgency, a topic that in the US Army after Vietnam had become rather unfashionable. The US Marine Corps with their small wars tradition had kept the flame alive, as indeed had US special forces. So you have you know, a favorable alignment of the planets and particularly you get in Western Iraq, in Anbar province, in Ramadi, the US Marines and the US Army actually making counterinsurgency work and indeed persuading a whole load of Sunni insurgents who'd been bitterly fighting the US to switch sides and fight with the US against Al-Qaeda. And there has been some quite extensive academic and historic research on the degree to which the surge worked. Well, it certainly did work to sufficient degrees that Iraq was made more secure or less insecure, and there was a limited amount of political progress. Progress, of course, which was then squandered after the 2011 election, where Prime Minister Maliki managed to retain power after the election, although he and his coalition had not won the election. And he then uses that period effectively to marginalise the Sunnis and go back to repressing the Sunnis, which of course is capitalised by ISIS coming out of Syria. So Maliki becomes the midwife of ISIS. But I think that the surge in Iraq, I think, worked. The surge in Afghanistan, well, Afghanistan was a less developed country, a country in which the international forces were faced with even greater difficulties. And although General Petraeus, taking over from McChrystal, did his best to create a similar effect that the surge in Iraq had created, I think history will record its effects in Afghanistan were more transitory. So take us through this endgame in Iraq. Is it fair to say then it becomes a relative military success, but mixed with what ends up being a quite substantial political failure? Yes, I think so. If you want to look at counterfactuals, there's a what if. What if after the 2011 election, the US makes it more difficult for Maliki to remain in power in Iraq? I mean, all the evidence is that the US military in Iraq, albeit in greatly reduced numbers, thought Maliki was conducting a slow-moving judicial coup where he was able to override the election results. But the US ambassador in Iraq was prepared to live with that. Of course, you have to remember by then it's President Obama, and President Obama's platform was responsibly ending the war in Iraq and shifting military effort to a good war in Afghanistan. So whether that counterfactual could ever have happened, you know, I'd want to take an expert on US politics advice on that. But I think, you know, if you look at the years 2011, 2012, 2013, the US were not able to change Maliki's malign behaviour with regard to Iraqi Sunnis. Well, we'll save that broader question then for a, a US policy expert, but you are a, an expert in the British military, I think it's fair to say. And it's Sir Lawrence Friedman who has, has said that the Iraq war has diminished every individual and institution it has touched. And we can certainly say that this is the case for Sir Tony Blair. But do you think this is the case for the British military? Do you think its reputation was dented, destroyed by the Iraq war? Was it left itself in a bit of an institutional crisis? 
Well, that's a thesis that has been put forward by Simon Ackham in his book, The Changing of the Guard, which, by the way, has a rather good account of the lessons learned work I did for the army. And I certainly wouldn't argue with what he says about that. Operation Charge of the Knights and its near failure damaged the reputation of the British Army with the US Army. I mean, I saw that myself, and it also dented the British Army's self-confidence. It was itself very controversial in the British Army. There was a significant minority of British Army officers I spoke to who felt that the accommodation and operation charge of the Knights was a disgraceful military defeat along the same impact of the fall of Singapore. I don't think it's quite that equivalent because, of course, Charge of the Knights succeeded. If Charge of the Knights had failed, it would have been a defeat of that magnitude. And which operation was Charge of the Knights again, Ben? That's the 2008 one when Prime Minister Maliki orders the Iraqi army into Basra, which initially fails and is then recovered partly by additional Iraqi forces, partly by US support. And then latterly, the British come in. But without that US support and additional Iraqi forces, it would have been a defeat. So I take that view. I think, though, we should be absolutely clear that both Air Chief Marshal Sir Jock Stirrup, the Chief of Defence Staff, and General Dannett, the Army Chief, were both absolutely of one mind that British forces needed to get out of Iraq to build up for a much more important war in Afghanistan. They also both hoped desperately that the war in Afghanistan would be seen as having greater legitimacy than the war in Iraq. The sad truth is, in my judgment, that the increasing British casualties in Afghanistan and apparent lack of progress and also cross-contamination of the legitimacy of the war in Afghanistan in the eyes of the British public from what was largely seen as an increasingly legitimate war in Iraq, you know, that makes it much more difficult to sell the war in Afghanistan to British politicians, media and the public. I think also the British army in Afghanistan from, well, there's several aspects about this. First of all, the fact that large numbers of very highly motivated Taliban swarm around those initial platoon bases in the Sangin Valley and the Helmand Valley in 2006, resulting in desperate sieges and an apparent image of British strategy in Afghanistan not being as advertised by Defence Secretary John Reid, that rather damages a perception of legitimacy. I think we have to be quite clear, though, that those platoon houses that came under siege, as indeed did similar American positions in eastern Afghanistan in 2008-2009, were it not for modern technology, they would have fallen. And if it wasn't for the use of artillery and mortars, and particularly copious amounts of fixed-wing and rotary-wing airpower, including the British Army's Apache helicopters, some of those would have fallen. And that, although they would have been tactical victories to the Taliban, those would have been tactical victories with strategic impact. And the other factor is that British troops can shoot straight. You know, they can shoot straighter than most armies in the world, and they shot straighter than the Taliban. Now, both the desperate sieges by the British defenders And also the Taliban attacks where they came forward in waves and waves and were prepared to keep coming forward until they were killed. You know, those are very interesting battles. I mean, they remind us about the importance of basics like being able to shoot straight, being able to defend your position, basic battle skills. But they also remind us of the importance of small unit motivation, leadership and tactics 
And there are a lot of very brave Taliban fighters that were killed in large numbers in these battles in both the British and American areas of Afghanistan. You know, they're fascinating microsms. What you then get is the British wanting to build up quickly in Afghanistan, but because they can't get out of Iraq as quickly as they want to, they don't build up quickly enough. And they aren't, for example, able to transfer enough helicopters to Afghanistan quickly enough. You also get, after Blair has resigned as prime minister, you get increasing friction, in my judgment, between the senior leadership of defence and Prime Minister Gordon Brown. I'm afraid that between 1997 and 2007, Gordon Brown earned himself a reputation in the Ministry of Defence of being very unhelpful with regard to defence's finances. And this bears on Afghanistan, particularly the vexed question of an apparent insufficiency of helicopters for Task Force Helmand. My judgment is that in 2004, Brown insisted on a real reduction, several billion pounds worth in the MOD's forward budget. And the Ministry of Defence, including the Chiefs of Staff, decided that one way they would solve the problem posed by this hole was to take a significant chunk of money out of the future programme for helicopters. So from 2007 to about 2010, one of the reasons there aren't sufficient British military helicopters in Afghanistan is as a result of Gordon Brown squeezing the Ministry of Defence's finances in 2004. And the relationship between the Ministry of Defence, the service chiefs and Gordon Brown throughout this period is very, very poor. It's also the case that neither Blair nor Brown choose to activate the National Security Council for decision-making about the wars. They use small groups of advisors, in Brown's case, apparently often not including the chief of the defence staff, and they don't have a proper mechanism for making balanced decisions. They also don't have a proper mechanism for checking that those decisions are implemented and reviewed. And it's only in 2010 when David Cameron, on his first day in office, revitalises the National Security Council, pointedly chairing a meeting on his first day in office, that there's a proper forum for strategic decision-making about security and the wars that Britain's fighting. That is astonishing. And it's because of these political and military decisions, many of which we overlook in the history books. These, In some cases, you might find quite banal and minute decisions. It's because of these that we live with the consequences today in Iraq and Afghanistan. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Tell us, where can people read more about this topic? Well, there is the book I've just uh, called Blood, Metal and Dust, How Victory Turned into Defeat in Iraq and Afghanistan, which was published about a year ago. From the 4th of February, it'll be available in paperback in a second edition, which includes 16 extra pages, half of which covers new material that I've come across and also describes the remarkable advances in battlefield medicine, which led to a lot of people surviving who in previous wars would have died but also about half of the new material looked at the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan last year and seeks to better explain it. It's always a good sign when a book comes out as a second edition in paperback. I've seen the book. I've read the book. I think it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. Go out there and buy it. Ben, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, James. Thanks.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.